Our scripture today comes from the book of Micah, chapter 4, verse 9, through chapter 5, verse 15. Now, why do you cry out loud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished, that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many people, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. When the Assyrians come into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like the dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and your enemies shall be cut off. In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and will destroy your chariots, and I will cut off the cities of your land, and throw down all your strongholds, and I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes, and I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands, and I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities, and in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey." On Easter Sunday, we celebrate in a particular way 
that Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, is not a dead kind of God. He's very much an alive kind of God. He's not languishing in a tomb. He's risen as we've been singing. And the songs that we sing and the the scriptures that we read, the sermons that we typically hear resonate with themes of victory and power and joy and dominion. You, You kind of expect that. Spring comes, Easter comes, you walk into a church, you're all dressed up, you're You're kind of anticipating that because the resurrection of our Lord does come with a promise of fresh starts and new beginnings and life for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he lives, we too shall live. We've been singing about that. But friends, I think all that talk of victory and joy can ring strangely hollow if that is not the way your life feels right now. It can just feel like a a massive disconnect. It it can sound so amazing, but but if I could use this illustration, I, I wonder if it's almost like watching a fairy tale from a million miles away and thinking, man, oh man, wouldn't it be great if that was my story? Friends, life for the people who first heard and read this passage in Micah 4 and 5 did not feel like a carefree Easter Sunday. It didn't. And if you've been with us for some time, you know that that we're in the middle of an eight-week study of the book of Micah uh, entitled, A God of Justice and Mercy. And if you were with us last Sunday, you might remember that, that Micah 4.9 picks up where we began reading this morning on the heels of quite the contrast. And, and it's a contrast but between the social injustice and imminent judgment the people of God are experiencing in chapter 3 on account of their spiritual idolatry and this glorious vision in chapter 4 of what life will be like when the Lord makes all things new. So just imagine what the original recipients of Micah in the 8th century BC, that's a long time ago, must have felt. Especially the faithful remnant in Israel. How, how they must have longed, friends, with all their heart for all those glories in Micah 4 to come to pass. Longed for that. To to know the joy of being God's people and God's place under God's rule with with no more sin and no more suffering and and no more death. I imagine some of them hearing Micah in these chapters and and they couldn't say it literally to him thinking in their heart, but Micah, the, the, the vision in chapter four sounds amazing, man. But we're not there yet. We're so not there yet. We're, Micah, we're still a mess. And and you even told us that all the blessings in Micah 4, 1 through 8 would not come to pass, verse 1, until the latter days. Until a really long way off. 
So Micah, how are we going to get from here to there? Are we going to get from here to there? And, and what should we do here and now as we're suffering or as we're waiting? What, what Micah tells them, friends, in the, the rest of chapter 4, the second half of 4, and all of chapter 5 is the answer to that question. And I would summarize it this way. Experiencing God's salvation is a matter of trusting God's promises. Experiencing God's salvation is a matter of trusting his promises. In other words, if you want to know how do we get from here to there, how do we get from our present sorrows to the final day when the Lord makes all things new and everything in Micah 4, 1 through 8 comes to pass, how do we get from here to there? The answer is this. We want to experience God's salvation. It's a matter of trusting God's promises in the here and now. And that word now is actually a really key word in this passage. Micah uses it to set up three contrasts between the the distress Israel's about to experience and the deliverance the Lord will work on her behalf. He, He just keeps going back and forth between those two things, snapshots of suffering followed by promises of mercy. And every one of those contrasts, between suffering, judgment, and mercy, reveals a promise about God's salvation that Israel needed to trust and that we need to trust too. And those three contrasts are followed by two additional promises about the result of God's intervention. And thus, I have a five-point sermon for you on Easter Sunday. So put your seatbelts on. We're going to work quickly but I want you to remember the main points, okay? Experiencing God's salvation then and now is always the result of trusting God's promises. Here's the first promise. Promise number one, the Lord saves at the point of our greatest distress. He saves at the point of our greatest distress. Look, look at verse nine, chapter four. Micah begins in verse 9 with biting sarcasm, okay? This will get our attention. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has has your counselor perished? He's describing a day, a coming day, when the, the armies of Babylon would dethrone the king of Judah, exposing the folly of trusting in human leaders instead of in the Lord. What what does he tell them to do? Writhe and groan on that day, Micah says. Why? Because grief is an appropriate response, friends, to the sorrow of sin. Look at verse 10. For now you shall go out from the city. A future now. But so sure, it might as well be present. And dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. You, you might not know that, it, that at this point, latter half of the 8th century BC, when, when Micah is declaring, speaking these words, Assyria is actually still the dominant military power on the scene. Ba- Babylon is small fries at this point. But the Lord knows the end from the beginning, doesn't he? He always has. 
And so he, he revealed to Micah the suffering Judah would experience centuries before it actually came to pass. He said to his people, listen, the punishment of exile in Babylon is guaranteed. But, but even those sobering words in verse 10, friends, they contain a seed of hope. Don't, don't miss this, okay? What's that? That the sorrow we experience on account of our sin in Babylon is not a surprise to the Lord. It's not a surprise. In his perfect justice and gracious discipline, he has ordained Babylon's too. They're not outside his control. No part of your life. Self-inflicted sorrow included. (laughs) Escapes God's sovereign hand. Remember that. Remember that. And notice what the Lord says will happen in Babylon. Back at verse 10. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Whenever you see a repeated word in scripture, handbrake. (laughs) It's not an accident, okay? Micah doesn't repeat the word there by mistake. The Lord's making a profoundly important point. That that his redeeming work in their life will be just as specific as their troubles. Just as particular. Israel, I do not traffic in generic rescues. My, My salvation is perfectly suited to the exact conditions, the, the exact times and places of your trouble. And it will come to pass in the one place, the very place you feel most forgotten, most abandoned, most forsaken by me, Babylon. And you're going to wail in grief for what you've lost, and so you should. But when you do, trust my promise, Israel, salvation begins in Babylon. Do you believe that, friend? That salvation can actually begin in Babylon? Or or do you think that that there are spaces in your life, whether actual or potential, where where you you say to yourself, man, if if I end up going there, if I stumble there, if I do that, that hole is too deep. That, that hole is game over. I, I, I don't even think God himself could deliver me out of that one. Because after all, I, I brought that on myself. You know, maybe I can trust God for things that kind of come at me, troubles from without that I can't control. But when that's self-inflicted, when I'm experiencing that sorrow, because I know I messed up, I did that. I, I dropped myself in that hole. I'm in Babylon and all the lies and selfishness and pornography and bitterness is completely my fault. So it was with Israel. And yet the Lord says to them, friends, salvation begins in Babylon. You see that not, not a hundred miles outside the city after wayward Israel began to take 
a few stumbling steps back toward Yahweh. Where where did his salvation begin? Where's the Lord promising it's going to start? In Babylon. At, At her lowest point. Her darkest hour. Why? Because the Lord delights to save at the point of our greatest distress. Here's the second promise. The Lord saves to the surprise of our enemies. So he saves at the point of our greatest distress in Babylon, but he also saves to the surprise of our enemies. Verses 11 through 13. The second contrast is found here. And like the first one, it too begins with a now. A present sorrow. Now many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled. Let let our eyes gaze upon Zion. Wait, what's going on with that? Well, Israel's enemies are gloating over her downfall, right? They're they're delighting in her shame. They're, They're feasting their eyes, their greedy eyes on the nakedness of her, her spoiled field. Her ravaged cities, they they perceived her as completely helpless, utterly abandoned. Have, Have you ever done something wrong, but then felt like the people around you responded by piling on? You ever experienced that? Relationship, the coworker kicking you while you were down, rubbing your face in the dirt. Maybe, maybe, maybe you started the trouble, but now that person is troubling your trouble. And, and all the mocking voices around you and even inside the corners of your own mind just won't stop. Shame, shame, shame. Maybe you're in a marriage where you know you've been far from perfect, but now your husband is abusing you. Where you started hanging out with a rough crowd and they took advantage of you. I I think part of the the confusion and and even the mental anguish in situations like that is is something within us knows we're, we're not completely innocent. We're not an angel. But that doesn't change the fact, hear this friend, that real people have have committed real acts of moral evil against you for which they, not you, are responsible. And the nation surrounding Israel Syria, Babylon, others, they they committed horrific atrocities against the people of God. Gruesome atrocities that that put what's going on in Ukraine to shame, frankly. And God doesn't turn a blind eye to a single one of them. That's what he's saying. In other words, he doesn't say to his people, you've made your bed, now lie in it. Good luck. No, he, he holds Israel's enemies accountable for their actions, no less than Israel. And it is Israel who will ultimately prevail against them, Micah says. And, and so to the assembled people of God, 
in every age who experience the enmity of cultural voices of persecution that mock the church, that retweet our scandals. The Lord of hosts declares back in verse 12, look there, friend. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. In other words, the the pagan nations around Israel did not have a biblical theology of suffering. They, They didn't have a theology of the cross Okay, In their mind, the the fate of a nation reflected the nature of their God. So look at Israel. They're a mess. What's that mean? Either Yahweh is weak or he's done with his people. Why, Why else would they be so sorely afflicted? We must be favored. They must be despised. But of course, there are two realities two ways of God that the enemies of his people in every age, even today, fail to remember. First, their own accountability before their creator. And second, please hear this, the overcoming power of God's mercy. How could God still be for Israel? if he's allowing her to suffer? That's the question, isn't it? Friend, it's because the story of the Lord's discipline in our lives is Jesus' story. (laughs) It it looks like defeat. It, It looks like God has forever withdrawn his favor. I mean, think about it. Could anything appear darker or more hopeless than death on a cross? That then the king of glory laid in a tomb. That, that's, that's all the nation saw. A cross, a tomb. But friend, that is not where Jesus' story ended. <laughs> And that's not how the story of God's people ends either. What what is a biblical theology of suffering? What what does a theology of the cross tell us about our sorrows? That suffering is the road to glory. You want to get to glory? You want to be with the Lord? You want to be with Jesus? You're going to have to walk a road of sorrow like he did. And yet we know the cross culminates in the resurrection. As for Israel, so for us, as for us, because it was for Jesus. Sin and its consequences do not have the final word. Look at verse 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many people and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. What what is Micah saying? When the Lord saves you, Christian, to the surprise of your enemies, you, you will not gloat in their downfall the way they once gloated in yours. Rather, 
when the righteous judge of all the earth vindicates you, the result will be trembling awe as you take the crown of his mercy and his favor, his vindication that he's bestowed on you, and you cast it down before his feet in an act of grateful, humble worship. There will be no gloating among men as a result of his vindication. Enemies in every age desire to thresh the people of God. But the Lord promises his people will tread them down. Not because we deserve it, but on account of the greatness of his mercy. Psalm 37 verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. And he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. That's the second promise that the Lord saves to the surprise of his enemies. It's true for Jesus. It'll be true for you, Christian. Here's the third promise. The Lord saves through his chosen Messiah. And now we're in chapter five, verses one through six. Remember I said there were three contrasts. This is the final one. It too begins with a now. Look at verse one. And now of present sorrow, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Now Israel faced a literal siege. You know, that's when you surround a city with your army so nobody can get in or out. When Babylon destroyed Jerusalem in 587 BC, they were, they were literally besieged. And, and yet that siege is a, is a picture of What? A picture of the forces of the world, our flesh, the devil, arrayed against the people of God in in every age. And Micah reminds us, look at verse 1, that that human rulers in Israel's day offered no refuge. Verse 1, with a rod, they, her enemies, strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Her her kings were about to be utterly humiliated in the exile. And yet the Lord directs Micah's gaze, his people's gaze beyond exile to an exceedingly precious promise about the future. Look at verse two. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Did you know that the city of Bethlehem is so small that in Joshua 15, it didn't even make the list of a hundred cities that the Lord was giving to the tribe of Judah. Doesn't even make the cut, top 100. It, it, It was easy to overlook. No less than a young man named David. When the prophet Saul came to Bethlehem to anoint one of Jesse's sons, the next king of Israel. And and the Lord made a covenant with King David, a promise affirmed in Psalm 89, 35. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever his throne as long as the sun before me. And and so the Jewish people waited. They, They knew that promise to David and to his line. So they waited. They, they waited for what? For, for Yahweh 
for the Lord to, to raise up a Messiah in the line of David, an anointed ruler who would, who would fulfill the promise God made, what does Micah say, from of old, from ancient days, referring to the Davidic covenant. To which I would simply say, praise God that his saving purposes are delightfully stubborn. <laughs> You ever think about that? I, I tell my boys sometimes, guys, in God's kingdom, there's bad kinds of stubborn, but there are good kinds of stubborn. One of the best kinds is the promises of God. Because no matter how long we have to wait, they're stubborn. They never fail to come to pass. And, and 700 years later, God kept that promise in verse 2, friends. Listen, Matthew chapter 2, verse 4. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for, for so it is written by the prophet, who are they quoting? Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for, whom, for, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. What, what does the story of God's redemption shout at that point? That God delights to use what is small and despised and of little account in the eyes of the world to accomplish his saving purposes. Children included. Look at verse 4. Actually, let's, let's go back to 3. Therefore, he shall give him up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. You know, long after a remnant returned from Babylon, from exile, Israel remained subject or, or given over to foreign kings. Just one after another, after another, a whole bunch of Greeks, then a bunch of Romans. And by the time the first century AD rolls around, Who's still ruling over Israel? Romans. Which is why so many of Jesus' followers expected him, if he was the Messiah, to, to start a civil uprising. Right? If, if you're the Messiah, isn't it your job to rise up as a ruler, Micah 5, 2, and kick some Roman? Mm. Come on, Jesus. But what did they not remember? What, what do we tend to forget, even in our very physical suffering? That all those human enemies, Assyria, Babylon, Rome, they, they were mere echoes of the works and effects of an even greater enemy. An enemy who had been, has been, oppressing God's people from the very beginning. Satan himself and the enslaving power of sin and death that he introduced into the world. That is the enemy, friend. That, that is the, the deadly siege that's, that's ultimately in view in Micah chapter 5. Men can destroy your body on earth, but sin will destroy your soul in hell. And so in the fullness of time, 
at, at just the right time, God sent forth his son. Jesus came to deliver us from our greatest enemy and and in the process to guarantee our deliverance in the future from all our other enemies. He came as one who was fully human to what? Gather his brothers to bring wayward sinners like us home to God. That's the promise in verse three. And he came as one who was fully God to do what? To grant us eternal security and peace as the perfect great shepherd Look at verse four, that even the best of Israel's leaders failed to be. How do, how do we know all that is true? What guarantees the fact that, that those promises are actually fulfilled in Christ? It's the simple fact, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is the savior who stands. Look at verse four, chapter five. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. What what did Jesus come and do, my friends? He perfectly obeyed God as the only faithful son. Okay, living the life we could not live. And he, he died on the cross to pay the full penalty for our sin, dying the death we deserve to die. And he rose from the grave, confirming what? That the infinite worth of his life vastly exceeded the immeasurable debt of our sin. He's not lying in a tomb somewhere, leaving you to wonder if his cross work was sufficient to to bring us home to the Father, to gather the people of God and give us eternal security and peace. After three days, he walked out of the tomb under his own power. Why? Because of Micah 5, 4. He is the savior who stands. He stands. He stands in the authority of God. He stands in the power of God. He stands with the glory of God. Why? Because Jesus is God. (laughs) So, So how do we know how do you know, Christian, that, that you're really, you really are secure in Christ? That, that you have perfect peace in Christ? Look back at verse 4, because the word for in the middle of the verse 4 <laughs> reveals both the ground of the security and the ground of the peace. What does Micah say? What grounds both of them? For, for this reason, because of this, Now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. You see, it's the the greatness of Jesus, friend, displayed in his triumph over the grave that, that enables him to offer you a security men cannot give and a peace money cannot buy. The security of of knowing that it's well with your soul. And that nothing can separate you from God's love. The, the, the peace of knowing you've been reconciled to God and you can cry out to him as your father. And, and listen, the point of all Mike is saying here is this. If, if death itself cannot hold the Lord's Messiah down, then what do we have to fear? <laughs> what do you have to fear? Let, let men throw their very worst at you, Christian. They still cannot snatch you from the palm of his hand. 
from the strong arm of of the great shepherd, there is no greater security, no greater peace than the security and the peace that we find in our risen King, Jesus. In other words, to use Micah's language, there is only one now. One now, one reality strong enough to quiet the murmuring, anxious nows of all our other suffering and sorrow in a broken world. What's that now? Well, it's the immovable and eternal now of the supremacy of Christ over every other power, every other rival, sin and death included. So so if you're longing for security, if you're longing for real peace, what's Micah tell you this morning? You need to look to Jesus. Trust in Jesus because he stands in victory. We can dwell in peace and security. That's Micah's point. And so when, look at verse six, the Assyrian comes into the land. When, when the enemies of the people of God encroach, even in this day, when, when we feel the oppression of the world, the flesh, the devil, the, the Lord will often bring hope and help through the ministry of his people and those who serve in his stead. That, that's what the, the poetic image of seven shepherds and eight princes of men in verse five is all about. The Lord will, will even raise up spiritual leaders among us as he has and continues to, to, to advance his kingdom in the land of Assyria. In the land of Nimrod, Mike is promising that the, the truth and power of the gospel is, is going to take root even in the darkest corners of the world. But when it does, when the Lord uses his people under shepherds included to extend his redemptive rule, know this church, he is ultimately the one bringing the deliverance. Look at verse six. Don't miss this. They, human leaders, shall shepherd. And he, singular, the Lord, shall deliver. Don't confuse those two. The Lord delights to use us, but he alone can save. Here's the fourth promise, and this is a sweet one. The Lord saves that we might be a blessing in our victory that we might be a blessing in our victory. The, the second half of Micah 5 kind of opens up, shows us the, the divinely intended effect of the Messiah's rule. And the first effect is found in verses 7 to 9. Micah compares the presence of God's redeemed people in the world to two things. Look at verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people like dew from the Lord. Like do from the Lord. Now, now, if you ever leave out something in your yard in the spring, something that's not supposed to get wet, you might not have great feelings about the dew. <laughs> but, but in a farming society, an agricultural context, that, that picture of dew, of showers on the grass, was an image of, of all that is good and beautiful and nourishing. An image of blessing. Friend, the Lord hasn't just called us to hang on and wait for heaven. He has good work for us to do. Really good work. He he intends his church, our church, to be a blessing to the world. 
starting with the community in which you live, our, our presence in Midlothian, your, your presence on the street where you sleep, the office where you work should be like dew. In the sense that you bring, wherever you go, a, a holistic nourishment and, and life with you. Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. In other words, we're blessed in Christ that we might be a blessing. Amen? That, that all the time, all the abilities, all the resources the Lord has given you are not ultimately for you. They're for him. No, no less than the Messiah in verse two comes forth for him. So here's a good question for us to ask. If our church disappeared tomorrow, would our presence be missed? <laughs> ask the Lord to show you how you can be a tangible blessing. Verse eight, to the many peoples in which the Lord has planted you. The second comparison Micah makes For the presence of God's redeemed people in the world is found in verse 8. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest. So Christian, you are to be like dew. And at the same time, you are to be like a lion. (laughs) Coming back from a recent trip to Africa, I have a fresh appreciation for the power of lions. (laughs) So let me ask you this, especially for you kids listening to me. Where does a lion fit in the animal food chain? The bottom, very bottom? No, no, at the top, right? It's at the top. It it has no natural enemies. It it enjoys victory, so to speak, over all the other animals. It, It doesn't have to spend its days worrying about protecting itself from other predators. What's my point? What's Micah's point? That no matter how much suffering we experience among the nations, Christian, you are never a powerless victim. Do not let your identity in a world of sorrows become I am a victim. That doesn't mean the people of God are not victimized. But your identity is not victim. Why not? Why not? Because our identity comes from King Jesus, who is the Lion of Judah. Romans 8, verse 37, in all these things, all our sorrows, self-inflicted suffering included, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, Paul says. Which means confident in Jesus' triumph over every evil power. We, we're, we're free, so to speak, to lay down our life, to be that blessing instead of trying to save our life. We, we live with lion-like boldness and freedom and courage that comes from where? Knowing that he who is within us is greater than he who is in the world. The Lord saves that we might be a blessing in our victory. Here's the final promise. I told you we'd make it to five. The Lord saves by destroying the false gods we like to trust. This could be a whole sermon in its own right. Verses 10 through 15. And in these verses, look at them with me. The Lord promises to cleanse his people. 
from all the idols that got them into trouble in the first place. Do you see that? All, all the things that they, they loved and they trusted instead of the Lord. It's quite a list. Horses, chariots, cities, strongholds. They, they looked for spiritual knowledge, wisdom through sorcery and fortune telling instead of the word of God. So God says, what? I'm going to cut that off. <laughs> they, they trusted in the Canaanite gods of Baal and his fertility consort Asherah to, to prosper their homes and fields. So what's the Lord say? I'm going to cut that off. <laughs> and, and you read through this list and, and it really is a sobering list to read, brothers and sisters. Why? Because I have my own. You have your own. We do the exact same thing. Please hear this. Whenever we try to save ourselves by using other people or other things to try to control our future instead of surrendering our life and our future into the hands of the God who knows all our ways, who's sovereign, who's loving, who's who's wise. Dale Davis says this so well. Israel will have to trust Yahweh alone for he will totally eliminate, listen, their favorite safety devices (laughs) and level every cherished place of refuge. Aren't you grateful that the God who saves is the God who sanctifies? He does it through the power of the Spirit. He takes the gospel, the truth of the personal work of Christ, and he uses that to what? To draw our hearts away from all those broken cisterns that hold no water and cannot save, and to woo our hearts back to him as the only one who can save. That's grace. It's Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I read that and I say in response, that, that's a painful process. That's a painful process because I really like holding on to horses and chariots and cities and strongholds and images and pillars. And let's just throw it all in verse 13 to all the works of my hands. I'd rather hold on to that, sadly, than Jesus. How about you, friend? Experiencing God's salvation requires trusting God's promises. God's promises. It's a matter of trusting his promises. And we will never trust his promises if we're too busy trusting everything else. Right? So let me be really clear. Okay? Not all suffering in your life is due to your personal sin. But all suffering provides an opportunity for you to grow spiritually as God uses your suffering to wink you away from those broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
Remember that. And praise the Lord for his commitment to cleanse us from the inside out. He's so kind to do that. Micah 4 and 5 does not urge us to trust a single promise. It just vomits out a whole list. (laughs) And I love that. A long and glorious list. What's the list? That the Lord saves at the point of our greatest distress. The Lord saves to the surprise of our enemies. The Lord saves through his chosen Messiah. The Lord saves that we might be a blessing in our victory. And the Lord saves by destroying the false gods in which we like to trust. And that middle promise, the Messiah's redemptive rule, that's the one that brings all the rest of them to pass King's way. And so it's the empty tomb that that confronts you, that confronts us with with the surety of God's promise again and again and again. May we be a people who live accordingly, who, who trust all the saving promises of God because the empty tomb reminds us we can trust them again and again and again. Let's pray. Lord, you are so kind. So kind through an oft-forgotten portion of the Old Testament to give us another road to Calvary and the empty tomb. Jesus, as your people today, we thank you with Micah that you are the ruler who stands. You're not sitting idly. You're not lying unconscious. You're not dead in a tomb. You're the savior who stands. And we pray, Lord, that seeing you standing in victory would wean our hearts away from all the other things we like to trust instead of you. Thank you, Jesus, for the way you save. Thank you for the fact that you save. Strengthen our faith, Lord, that no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. And do that even now as we sing, I pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.